Hello, my name is Maya Shiesan, and welcome to my podcast, Finding the Undercommons. A little bit of context, if you haven't heard the first episode, I'm a senior majoring in Africana Studies at Brown University, and this mini-series is my capstone project for the major. For the second episode of this podcast, I'm in conversation with Saul Whitley, who was a professor of mine in fall 2020 for the class Conversations in Transfeminisms, and is someone I've really enjoyed staying in conversation with and learning from. I'm excited to have them here as part of this podcast and to share our conversation with y'all. Beautiful. Okay, if you would introduce yourself, that would be lovely. Cool. So yeah, I'm Saul Whitley. I'm a postdoctoral research associate here at Brown University. Um, I work in the Pembroke Center for Teaching and Research on Women. And I taught, um, as you know, in uh, gender and sexuality studies. And here at Brown taught a course on trans or transgender feminism. I received a PhD from UCLA in gender studies uh, last year in 2020. I also have a master's in African-American studies. And I identify as a black, queer, non-binary person. I identify as a black feminist, a black um, feminist ethnographer. And um, yeah, I can say more throughout our conversation, but I think that's a, a good amount of stuff. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I first was thinking I would love to, and I know that we have talked about this a little bit already, but like, what was the UCLA? So you were part of the UCLA Undercommons and like Robin D.G. Kelly um, wrote about in the piece, Black Study, Black Struggle. And I would love to hear more for this about like, what was the UCLA Undercommons? How was creating that mm-hmm. thoughts on being in that space and process? Cool, yeah, and thank you for um, reading about it and asking me about it because it definitely was, um, you know, I think back on my years of grad school or school generally, and those few months where we were actively running the Freedom School were the best sort of pedagogical, educational, radical space um, making that I've been a part of um, as a student. And so the Undercommons, you know, we got the name from the seminal piece by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney called the Undercommons. And we used the title to sort of speak to um, an idea that was in the text, but that we'd also been thinking through in a collective called the Black Infinity Complex of, you know, thinking through what um, would education and sort of radical education look like if it were sort of um, divorced from these like pressures of producing, you know, articles for publication or, you know, articles to put on our CVs, which are our academic resumes, you know, what could education look like, you know, if we weren't in intense competition, the way that the neoliberal university tries to put us in competition for resources and for, you know, sort of, um, sort of resources and, and um, status or social capital or what have you. And so it definitely was in the traditional freedom school model. And uh, five of us came together to found it, five other black graduate students who are amazing, amazing scholars and all doing phenomenal research now and activism now. But it ended up becoming a very horizontal um, structure where all these people, all these different radical spaces and collectives across campus and across Los Angeles, because it was housed at UCLA, came together to think together across our different movements, our different sets of knowledge, and like the different actual mobilizations, community mobilizations that we were engaged in, whether that was, you know, in a particular department, in a particular part of the city, like defend Boyle Heights, you know, and the sort of struggle against gentrification that's going on there, or particular um, sort of anti-prison struggles that are happening across Los Angeles, right? Um, So we brought all of those together in weekly, um, actually twice a week, we'd have two sort of teach outs, you know, and they were outside in, you know, on this uh, stairwell that's really um, central on UCLA's campus. Mm -hmm. And we sort of staged it almost as a education, a radical education space, but also a performance piece to sort of say, well, actually education could look like this. It could look different. And actually by bringing activists and community folks that weren't students or faculty, the composition ended up looking a bit different than uh, normal normal classes at UCLA and that there were more Black folks, people of color. Um, we had Indigenous folks come to speak as well. But, but it, was a, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal space. 
Um, we also work to sort of like the Undercommons text talks about, steal resources um, from the university. And by that, we could think of it literally, but also by um, sort of redistributing some of the funds and capital to folks in community. Um, so we definitely organize together to get folks that, you know, aren't typically paid for their labor, like activists, particularly activists of color and indigenous and black activists, um, to get them paid for the knowledge that they were bringing to the, to the, to the space. That's so dope. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, I, I'm just imagining it in my head, like y'all sitting on the steps it just sounds really incredible. <laughs> um, yes, it really was. Mm -hmm. And how long, so I know that you said that it's not currently happening, but how long did y'all keep this going in whatever shape or form? Yeah, so it was about a year. The sort of most mobilized portion of it was a, uh, pardon me, a quarter, mm -hmm. I believe in 2016. But um, in that quarter, like I said, we had sessions on Tuesdays. I think it was Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And then in the following quarter, we had sessions maybe one day a week or every other week. But yeah, it was, um, uh, it was about a year. But then at the space actually, you know, as a, as a Facebook group and as just, you know, email group and as a collective that's actually still in touch, mm -hmm. um, the group even now could still be activated for uh, various radical ends, um, including, I know that some undercommons organizers, I wasn't as active with this, but wrote a piece about um, like a universal basic income, right? And so someone had this idea that, to write the article and then sent the information out to the listserv of the undercommons and folks ended up co-writing an article about, about that topic. And even sort of in the space of the pandemic, you know, folks coming together and wanting to talk about, okay, what does mutual aid look like? what is the need that could be um, met in Los Angeles and some undercommons organizers in LA actually started something called People for People Los Angeles and are um, sort of delivering groceries to folks that have um, health issues, right? Or like comorbidities or what have you and can't go to the grocery store and also folks that have experienced heightened police violence. Um, and so they, instead of just like singling out one or the other, they were like, actually some people are um, many people are engaging in multiple crises simultaneously and um, could use resources, um, you know, that, that could be redistributed. So it's interesting to think about maybe a genealogy of organizing that's happening now out of, out of the space that we created there. Um, though I'm not in LA or part of People for People Los Angeles, mm -hmm. um, several undercommons organizers uh, started that out there. Have, um, I guess with the increased connection via distance um in the pandemic have y'all like met or done like a zoom call at all has it been activated in that way of like sharing space quote unquote or has it been mostly like organizing particularly within LA and then keeping everyone else like in the loop well I know that the you know at the beginning of the pandemic we had one call um but I know that the People for People Los Angeles are the ones that are sort of engaging around that particular effort now. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think what's great is that we're all in touch via like our friendships and our networks. And mm -hmm. yeah, so that there's nothing sort of actively percolating now. But um, I think all of us would say that the work that we're doing now is inspired and actually came out of the space that we created there and the conversations that we had there. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you know, the, the piece I just told you about where I'm thinking about you know, how labor organizing, like in this current moment of neoliberalism um, and like heightened uh, sort of attacks on social services, how um, labor organizing could actually be in tandem with anti-debt organizing, right? Or anti-austerity um, organizing. In the undercommons, we created, you know, these spaces where we'd have presentations or teach outs by the labor union, where we'd have presentations or teach outs by a group called the Debt Collective, right? Um, where we all got to sort of say how much debt we had, which was really bizarre, like, hello, my debt is $35,000. And like, let's talk about how to understand these systems of violence and racial capitalism that are perpetuating debt. And also let's talk about debt and relationship to our labor, right? So the space was actually designed to bring people together across various movements and across differences of identity and 
struggles, um, whether that was, uh, you know, putting uh, Students for Justice in Palestine in conversation with anti-prison organizing and, and sort of prison abolitionist organizing in, a, in Los Angeles, right? At the time, I know that there was the um, an Indian student movement happening as well. Um, so just like bringing these conversations together, not just to, you know, introduce folks, but to actually think about, okay, what are the strategies strategies that you're raising to challenge the privatization of your, your university? What are the strategies that you're raising over at your university or in this context to challenge the militarization of the police, right? Mm. And sort of talking across um, the knowledges that we've gained and cultivated through our, you know, various uh, sort of mobilizations of, of struggle. So that was really the, those beautiful kind of connections that came together um, where we were at once learning from each other, but also sharing tactics that could, you know, knowledge that could be activated into, into action and resistance. Mm. Mm, ah. <laughs> it's moments like these when I wish I was better at like word responses because I'm just like, ah, oh, yes, that sounds incredible. And also so necessary of like, I think being in conversation in a way that I, I, I think about like being here at Brown and the ways in which there are different, like lots of different pockets. And I think, yeah, just combining forces and being like, okay, what have y'all learned from doing like decolonization work at Brown and what has railroad done with like trying to work on pushing Brown to, oh, there's a certain word for it, but hiring more formerly incarcerated folks yeah. um, and giving actual credits so that folks who are at the ACI and taking Brown classes get class get credits and then could enroll if they want to afterwards um but yeah so I just think that it would be and that feels something that's necessary especially on a campus space where it it feels kind of easy to get siloed in different ways Mm -hmm. um, but that they are all very much so intimately connected Um, it's true it's true that's so cool and I'm curious like so with the something that I've been thinking about that has definitely sparked this, and I think we talked about this a little bit already, but like sparked this podcast is, is, is thinking about, I think you use the language of like the ephemerality of these study spaces um, in our past conversation. And I'm curious, I guess I'm just curious on your thoughts of like, this went really strong for a year. And it's like you said, something that can be activated again. And I don't know, is that something that you think we should just embrace of the fact that like creating, like to use language of the of the undercommons, like creating these fugitive study spaces um, where we're really invested in what does, what does learning and working together look like in a way that is radically different from what it looks like in a classroom most oftentimes. Um, yeah. Not to say that a classroom can't look like that, but usually doesn't. Yeah, so I guess I'm just, this is a roundabout way of asking like, yeah, what are your thoughts on like the ephemerality of, of these spaces? And is that something we should just lean into and be like, okay, this is going to be, these things will pop up and then they will change. And, and that's just sort of the nature of things or, which is a long question, but that I think gets into my thinking of, are there benefits of like, of having maybe institutional support for something like what is lost and what is gained how that connects to ephemerality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that part of our conversation last time too. And I think I, I have a couple ideas. Um, I think that even though our space was in many ways ephemeral, right, we were still engaging in a type of world making or sort of pedagogical space making that even though it doesn't necessarily have a imprint on the built environment, mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, that is great. And we talked about how, you know, the university is on um, Tongva land, right? And um, whether or not the university should be there at all, whether the um, building should be there, how the university should be in conversation with the Tongva people and in redistribution of resources and capital to the Tongva people. Um, so in some ways, not actually contributing to the, the violence of settlement or even the language of, of settlement is, you know, in some ways what made the space a decolonial, a, a, place, a place that was trying to have decolonial politics, right? 
because education is often seen as something that has to take place in like these like buildings and structures, which are often created by like uh, contingent labor or previously slave labor or um, workers that, you know, the university is refusing to allow to unionize, right? So these, these structures um, where education takes place certainly impact, you know, like who gets to be there and who is there and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So there's that point I wanted to make about ephemeralness. But um, again, with the type of freedom school that we made, like I was saying, I think that we are, the undercommons is not, is, is, and is not ephemeral because we also are taking, we've taken all of us so much of what we learn there the relationships that we develop there, the sort of coalitional politics that we cultivated there with us to other spaces. And then there's this aspect of, okay, like how does this, something like this stay maintained from generation to generation or like as folks graduate and what have you. And I think one way that that could happen is archiving and sort of producing archives, whether digital archives or podcasts, like you know, what you're doing where folks can actually tap into models and get a scaffolding of, of how spaces were created, what worked, what didn't, what was sustainable for how long, and sort of maybe folks that are coming behind uh, later could sort of share, could sort of um, learn from, from that um, information. And I think I was telling you about the University of Maryland has like a digital collection pro- uh, project around um, archiving student activism across the country. And so like a project like that, right, would be able to, um, uh, you know, sort of challenging ephemeral, right? Because it's like, well, this is when it was activated. This is now like, you know, of the past, but then people can can be inspired by it later. But yeah, I think I also mentioned that soon after um, a lot of um, the undercommons active organizing was happening, uh, an institution called the UCLA Institute on Inequality and Democracy um, came about and was created by Ananya Roy and is housed at the um, School of Public Affairs at UCLA. And that space, I like to think that they're connected. And I know that Undercommons organizers were on panels the first year that the Institute uh, came off the ground and was in conversation with the um, leaders of that Institute. But that Institute has events where they're bringing together activists from um, South Africa, act, you know, and fees must fall and putting them in conversation with academics that are maybe scholar activists, maybe not, you know, on the panels. And they're, they're really an institution, an uh, institute that is, you know, challenging who knows, who gets to know and which types of knowledge are valuable, right? So they'll at once have a scholar that's studying like sort of the homelessness crisis in our, in our major cities and then also have the, um, the organizers from like LA CAN, right, which is one of the main um, anti, um, the main sort of advocacy groups for houseless folks in Los Angeles. So putting folks that typical academic panels don't put in conversation, um, this institute is doing that. And so if we think about just the ways that what we do can live on in very different ways and inspire different mobilizations that are you know, relational, different, maybe slightly different politics, maybe not. But I think that it sort of all becomes connected and like ongoing in in the struggle, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, mm. your point about, um, well, I think there's obviously (laughs) like so much there. I'm really thinking about archiving um, because I think yeah, and I know we had meant, we had talked about this earlier, but that just feels not that there is an answer by any means to these questions on how to navigate being as Moten and Harney identify like being in but not of the university and and navigating this I think how to pass it on to future generations of students with like the quick turnover that happens that archiving feels like a like a very easy answer in a lot of ways, but also not one, but also like, that's it. Like, yeah, that, that feels kind of like what's, what's missing in a lot of ways. And I think, but then it also has me wondering, did, did y'all do any archiving in the undercommons slash, do you have any ideas for how, I think what I'm also thinking about is, so I'm in this radio station, WBRU 360, 
and we have, you know, there's the Google Drive that is sort of the attempts at archiving that so many different like student generations have happened. And that's something that we're coming at right now is we really want to archive this knowledge because the people who are running this beforehand didn't really pass down what we needed to know. And so the two of us who are running here are kind of like, I, we have an idea and we've been in it and we've seen how past people have run it, but how do we make it so that, how, how do we archive what we are doing slash passing down the knowledge that's important about the radio station, about how it's changed. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we talked about when I was in railroad, primarily in my sophomore year that changed when I came back from being abroad, but railroad is like the student abolitionist group on campus here. Um, Yeah, it was really, and I think, I I guess I'm also thinking about the ephemerality because the group of people shifted so differently and that made it a very different space Mm -hmm. coming back and being like, ah, this isn't necessarily the community that I had when I left. But yeah, we, we had talked about archiving, but I think I think this is a very long way of saying that it that also feels more difficult than it seems, I guess, on the surface. Yeah, it is. And I think um, just developing programming, publicizing the programming that you have, balancing your schoolwork as a student or a faculty member that's participating or someone that's maybe a working mother that's participating. We had some folks from Mothers of Color in Academia. So in some ways, it, it feels like a success just to get um, the spaces together and, um, you know, different community groups at the university, which is kind of not as accessible, I mean, in terms of the expensiveness of parking, right, in Los Angeles and, you know, how to navigate the campus. Um, it can be hard um, just to, to sort of pull off uh, the space, right, and, and bring people together. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, I mean, we, we did talk about archiving as it was going on. And I know that my friend and and colleague Marcus Vestal has an archive of some of the work that we were doing and some of the materials that we created. Um, I have an archive of some of the work that we did, including a lot of photography of the events and video of um, the sort of teach outs as well, or just the videos of us breakdancing, you know, as like a sort of like, collective self-care practice sort of in the middle of the school day right which for many of us is like filled with violence right or what some call microaggressions I don't call them microaggressions I just say you know racial gender violence and and unfortunately sometimes sexual violence yeah and so to like be breakdancing or learning how to breakdancing or doing salsa in between these um spaces was also I mean that's ephemeral but it was sort of using our bodies to do something differently than we'd normally be doing Mm -hmm. kind of in like a rigid chair kind of facing forward with an instructor at the front of the room as like sole knowledge holder. Yeah. So in some ways, uh, well, to the point of archiving, we one have it in our memories and I'm excited to do maybe some oral history work in the near future with folks that, um, you know, participated um, throughout the different mm-hmm. iterations of the undercommons. So that, that's something that could be, you know, like which, you know, one could do for railroad as well, right? Like folks that maybe have graduated, you could just call those people up, record a session just to kind of get down what the space felt like for them, what the politics around prison abolition looked like for those um, students that have graduated and sort of ones that are there now. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing I like about oral history is that it's not really just taking these, these interviews, right. And like recording the past, it's like you end up creating like new, I don't know if kinetics is the right word or like sparks of connection. Right. So if I were to call up Shamel Bell or Alexis Cook or Tabisale Griffin, um, we would talk about the undercommons, but then we talk about, okay, so like, tell me more about people for people in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So like, what kind of work are you doing in the Bay Area? Um, do you have you heard of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Collective? I believe it's called. And so we'd actually then be reconnecting and like you know teaching each other about our movements and our pedagogies um, all over again. So yeah, I think there are definitely ways to think about how to pass this stuff on from year to year. But I think uh, sometimes it's as simple as like taking notes during meetings, you know, which no one ever really wants to do or is assigned to folks that are fun only, but um, maybe coming up with a, a way to 
just see as important, like the stuff that just feels like creating a home space, you know, it's like, it just means like seeing it as important, even though it's not something you could put on your CV, but just taking notes, um, taking pictures because it, it is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that I feel like is also the, I think one of the things that I guess I run up against is this, this desire for like homemaking and like space making and, and what that looks like in that, like having dance breaks and how wonderful that is. Or I just like being like in like, like physical and like, like hugging each other. I think when we, when we visit or um, I think about the carceral state reading group and how we like eat meals together. Yeah. Um, and that I think is, um, is also kind of what I, I, I'm drawn to this word ephemeral because, because um, like it has to do with feeling I yeah. and that it's, and not to say that it's flitting and not there, but very much so real, very much so present, but not, you can't stick it down in the same, in the ways in which I think the, the university so often pushes for things to be, to be pinpointed, to be documented, just that feels like like the beauty and the importance of of spaces like this I think so I think so and I think um maybe what's most important too in like sort of cultivating fugitive spaces cultivating fugitive spaces that like can feel homey or home-like or toward home is that um they're not just utopic spaces by any means um that there are folks that are you know bringing different like relationships and access to power and privilege um, or marginalization. Um, you have to think about, okay, well, who's taking up the most space in these moments and, and how can we, how and when do we sort of deploy a like step, step, step up, step back, step, uh, step in, step out mm-hmm. kind of politics. And also how are we um, dealing with conflicts that might arise? Because yes, it's a fugitive space, but again, like is everybody there sort of, uh, you know, the same level of accepting and affirming of queer folks that are coming to the space or understanding that having a session, a teach out on like trans makeup aesthetics, right, is like important and like of value. And, you know, not everybody will immediately understand that, right? It's like, oh, well, how, why, we should just actually like invite, you know, some of the former Black Panthers here to, to sort of talk about just this like militant struggle. And sometimes people might think that that's just more important than than something else. And so speaking across difference, whether that's sexual gender or racial identity or um, settler, non-settler identities, right? Those are the moments I think, because sometimes I think things are ephemeral because of these um, breakups that happen, right? These moments of crisis within the, the org or the collective or the school. Um, and we certainly had some of those, but we also then cultivated, um, I remember we had a conflict between folks and it was the first time that in order to solve, which wasn't really solved, but it was sort of mediated. Um, we went to one of the undercommons um, organizers homes. Several of us weren't actually involved in the, the dispute between the two people that we were bringing together. And we all just sort of like, sat and sort of tried to hold space for both people to have room to speak speak their minds and um, try to think about what accountability for either of them looked like. Um, it was the first time I participated in that kind of, I don't know if one would call it a transformative uh, sort of uh, justice work or what have you, right? But yeah, what do you do if somebody in these spaces is like, you know, has, has done something violent or harmful to somebody? Are we kicking people out? When do we kick people out versus like, you know, come up with some other way for them to be accountable or um, related to the space differently. And I think that, um, yeah, as much as sort of this issue of of handing down the baton and like keeping things going, it's like also uh, handing down these ways that were sort of in flux, creating in process ways to deal with conflicts, ways to be um, different and like loving our differences, but relating across them in ways that are respectful and um, uh, sort of acknowledging privilege and power. 
and uh, doing so in ways that bring folks together rather than push them apart. Yeah, that's, I mean, and that, um, but that feels like that's, that's it. That is the, I think for me, and you know, this is like, I'm thinking through like abolitionist world making with this, with this capstone of, of what does that look like? And that, that like you're talking about, how do we navigate accountability and harm and not expect all of us to show up on the same page, but, but to work to get there and being, I think also like, um, like showing up with, I'm going to say radical honesty, because that feels like the language that feels right right now, but but yeah, showing up with this radical honesty of, of t- together, of being together and that things are difficult and navigating that and that that's, that it is not, it's, it's messy. Relationships are messy in the most beautiful way, I think. And that's not to say that they also can't be very difficult. There can be a lot of harm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean to say that mess is always nice, but the, how, like, that feels that is the world making. Like, how do we navigate this where we don't just throw someone out because they caused harm? How do, how do we navigate that? And also when to make the decision of like, actually this doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like this is the space for you to be in mm-hmm. or like you're consistently causing harm and don't want to take accountability and how to, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just a, that's a long way of saying it. like, yes, I think that that's, yeah, also really important. And, um, yeah, it just feels like the stuff, I guess. It is. It really is. And actually, I'm remembering a moment. Um, so we actually had Fred Moten at a session, which was really great. I think I was telling you about it in that, um, you know, it was outside on those stairs, which are called Jan Steps, but we, I think, called, I think, Angela Davis Plaza or something. But yeah, during that event, which was our most um, attended event, you know, a lot of faculty came, a lot of students, a lot of organizers around LA came. Um, and so I think there were about 200 people there. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, um, while you know, we had like these almost like, so- I told you like the soccer parent chairs mm-hmm. up, up front and people could sort of rotate just at their leisure up and sit next to Fred Moten and sort of ask him questions. Um, someone in the audience who um, we later sort of uh, realized was a white um, houseless um, man you know, UCLA is a public university, you know, there, there are folks that um, anybody can come to the campus and like hang out and go into the library and um, sort of enjoy um, or use the space as a, a place of respite or what have you. And um, on the one hand, like folks that that person like would not have had access to a classroom space at UCLA, given the cost, given, you know, who's seen as like a respectable student and who isn't, right? A lot of students are houseless. That's another another conversation. But um, the way that he was asking questions was very disruptive. And he, I think, was bringing something up about, like, racism toward white people. And, you know, it seems like what he sort of said something like to Fred Moten that speaking about whiteness in a particular way, um, you know, seems like harmful. And he sort of interrupted Fred when he tried to respond. And then, um, but Fred sort of, Fred Moten, um, I think, didn't see it as a disruption, you know? Like, I think at a typical event that was in a, um, you know, like Rolf Hall on campus or, you know, some other space, some kind of security guard would have taken that person and and sort of kicked kicked him out. But it was interesting to see, uh, you know, this wasn't just folks that had already kind of gotten there like wokeness you know and so we're just gonna you know there are going to be people that are coming to the table from different places of understanding around race and racialization um different ways of taking up space that you know who gets to decide are appropriate or inappropriate or disruptive or not disruptive because you easily that can um mean that people that look like me um people that have identities like you are seen as disruptive as well right so yeah, it was interesting to sort of hold space for a moment that wasn't um, typical of an academic event, right? Or respectability politics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all that to say, uh, you know, navigating, navigating, uh, you know, a moment like that can show you how education 
and um, learning and knowledge sharing can look differently, even in sort of moments of tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was interesting that it wasn't just echo to just send that person away, though, even in my own system, I was like, oh, this is happening. Like, I feel responsible, you know, like, what should I do? And I was just like, well, like, we're actually like trying to do something differently here. So this person um, should speak and be heard. And um, we should come up with ways to then tell that person, which we had to, you know, okay, now it's time for somebody else to have a turn to speak and like, kind of coming up with that understanding on the fly and like, you know, trying to um, uh, engage that person even amid annoyance with respect um, was, was very difficult, <laughs> but um, something that I think we all were, were trying and, and hoping to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, that is difficult. And also <laughs> it is, and I think um, it sounds like it really speaks to the the space that y'all were creating and also the I think also the what it sounds like too is the the relationships that y'all have together to be able to navigate that together as well Mm. and I think the importance of that which I I think something I come back to a lot in hearing you talk about the undercommons and how it continues today I think about the Carso State Reading Group is like the importance of relationality Yeah. yeah which yeah, just feels like everything. Um, but I think I find, I personally, I know, find myself really drawn to the interpersonal, that relationality feels, feels like the realm that I am, um, that, that, that feels like the realm that I'm really interested in, in terms of like in this abolitionist world making, yep. which I'm, I want to switch gears a little bit. Cause I would really love to ask about how I think I'm going to throw out these three things and whatever feels most interesting to talk about, but I would love to hear your thoughts on like how like navigating the university while holding to an abolitionist praxis. And like you said about the ceiling, but this dynamic of the subversive intellectual that Moten and Harney talk about. I'm also curious on your thoughts of like refusal. This is something that like Jack Halberstam talks about a lot in the first chapter in the wild beyond the intro. And also the the two chapters I've read, I decided to focus on the Jack Halberstam intro um, and primarily the user, university in the undercommons um, mm-hmm. for the space of, yeah. <laughs> of time and understanding. But um, I've been thinking a lot about like the dynamic of refusal, this refusal to the call to order. And then, but that's just another thing that I want to like lay out there if you want to talk about. But then the last thing is, um, I think with navigating, navigating the university with an abolitionist praxis, um, I'm also curious on like how you understand, like what, what's the work that you're trying to do while you're in the university? Like you are currently a postdoc and how I guess how you understand yourself here slash how you understand the difference between um, like the critical academic and not and not being like professionalized by this critique of the university yeah I know that that's (laughs) a lot so we can go whatever direction but these are all things that I would was hoping to poke your brain about and see what you think yeah, thank you for posing these. Um, I'm curious to hear um, how you'd answer some of these as well, actually. Yeah, I think, um, where to begin here? Well, I mean, there, there are times where abolitionist praxis can look very different, right? So currently during the pandemic, you know, as a postdoc that's here for one year, I'm not sure I've, I've sort of struck the balance that I, you know, hope to have when I'm actually able to, you know, put down roots and be in community with folks and being like, you know, whether that's socially distanced or like in closer proximity, hopefully very soon. Right. But um, yeah, I think something that has always been hard for me is someone that's a, you know, community organizer at times and an academic at times and sort of sometimes a mix of both. Right is um, seeing my work as part of the abolitionist uh, praxis, like the article I just told you about. Indeed, I think even in that article, I'm thinking, okay, 
what are, what, what, how might we imagine financial quilombos or like financial maroon societies, right? That are like traveling across the sort of transatlantic, across borders. Um, what does it mean to sort of refuse the uh, politics of debt across these different spaces, whether that's criminal justice debt, medical debt, student loans, like just all the bullshit that, that is sort of disciplining us into being proper citizens. What are ways that we can organize across different types of debt and different financial accounts to do so? And so like, you know, writing about that and thinking about that and, and studying the work of, you know, organizers in Puerto Rico and organizers um, in Baltimore and New York um, around their politics of refusal. Um, well, I'm not like out in the streets doing that now, though I, you know, have been um, seeing that like that space of study as so important. Um, sometimes I think, you know, in the midst of family that are caught up in the carceral system, right, which has happened throughout my family, you know, throughout my family and it happens since I've been in the university has happened this year <laughs> since I've been in the university, um, you know, uh, Sometimes taking that space for fugitive study can, you know, you can sort of have almost uh, some guilt around it, whether you want to call it survivor's guilt or, um, you know, like, is this as important as just like, you know, being out in the streets or doing X, Y, and Z um, uh, and doing, you know, protests or what have you, stuff that's sort of more readily understood as like active abolitionist mobilization. And I think it's, you know, both are important. You know, I think finding a balance for me can be hard. I think especially when um, I have uh, someone in my immediate family in in the system, you know, like in the carceral system, it's like, I'm just, I think um, Sarah Haley, a historian, a black feminist historian, I haven't read her work on this, but I've seen her speak about something called a fourth shift, you know, sort of um, thinking about, okay, like folks have a shift at home, like at work, right? Where you like, you know, you, you like clock in for a shift and she goes through like all these types of shifts that people have throughout a day and she talks about how women of color black women in particular have what she's calling a fourth shift where they come home and they're actually not just making food not just cleaning but like organizing for how to you know support their people that um you know are on parole how to support their sons and daughters or cousins and aunts or whoever who um you know are navigating the system without a lot of financial resources um or what or, or um uh without like a sort of amazing legal team or what have you, right? So it's like black women having to go home and create filing cabinets on resources and pro bono, um, you know, lawyers and that being like this, this labor. And so, you know, for me this year, it's been that um, has been a part of my abolitionist politics um, and, and balancing that, um, you know, labor for my brother, you know, with the labor of, you know, teaching about abolition, you know, which I hopefully uh, did very well um, in the fall in our course, right? You know, but something I didn't get to do or haven't done yet, maybe um, this will inspire me to do is um, I know that there's a, a group in Rhode Island that does um, these socially distanced, like drive-by support, like trains, like, like people in their cars will like drive by um, and support people that are either just being released from prison or folk, you know, just sort of a solidarity gesture during the pandemic to, to um, support folks that, that are on the inside. And so I just thought that that would be a beautiful thing, but I was inspired to hear about that. Yeah, so that's, that's um, one response to that question, um, sort of navigating, okay, like what are the times that I can be active with a community group? What are the times that I'm actually like taking on the labor of bringing my abolitionist politics to my own family's uh, situations, right? And then also teaching this stuff and then like, you know, incorporating the politics into my research. In the fall, um, there's a conference where, like I said, I introduced you to scholars like Nick, Nick Mitchell and um, we're slated to be in conversation about, you know, critical abolitionist um, studies, right? Which they have written extensively about. And when that conference was slated to be in Baltimore last year, we were gonna write about Johns Hopkins from different angles and sort of the violence of that institution, the violence of its like real estate corporation around gentrifying um, areas of Baltimore, particularly East Baltimore, and you know, the sort of histories of slavery that intersect that campus. So like in that situation, if you know that panel and that conference still happens, it's, you know, four or five scholars thinking about like one, you know, the locus of one university and the ways that you know, one, it perpetuates violence, dispossession, um, exploitation 
but also maybe the constellation of resistance movements happening around that like one locus, like around Hopkins or what have you, whether that's campaigns against sexual assault that I've, um, you know, uh, been privy to when I, when I was a visiting scholar there or campaigns to prevent a private police force from being brought there, right? So just kind of um, sometimes uh, that's what abolitionist politics can be like, creating knowledge together on a panel, which doesn't always sound like the most woke thing to do, but it's like coming together and having these conversations, even if it's in an institutional setting, um, that can be very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and what more can I say? Yeah, I think, I'll, I think I'll stop there. I mean, I think that there are so many ways I could answer that question, um, but um, certainly in the work that I assign, like I don't just assign work by scholars, I assign work by, you know, folks like Alok um, Baid Manan, right, uh, who are doing, you know, sort of like gender justice, um, abolitionists, and racial justice organizing um, in the work that they do. And um, sort of bringing that work to students and to myself as just as important as the work that we're reading in Transgender Studies Quarterly, right? That neither is more important than the other. Um, And sometimes actually work that's coming, knowledge coming out of community spaces is often more important or ends up being what the academics write about or are part of as well, you know? So yeah, I think it can look a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like something that I feel like gets, I'm trying to figure out how I want to pull my words together. I think just like the, that um, you're a whole human navigating a whole life. in conjunction with the university. And I do want to say that, like, I think um, I totally hear and get, not that I am an academic who is writing things, but like um, from the undergrad student who has been reading so much of, of people like you're saying, who are like really committed to the shit that they are studying and doing it for a purpose. It's not, yeah, you're not just put, putting something into the void and being like, this doesn't matter to anyone, but I decided to write it because it gives me accolades. Um, the, just that I think the, the, I've been coming a lot to the, just the importance of, of this uh, and like the importance of having people who are deeply dedicated to their, to their politics and being in the world, um, writing things because then we get to think with it and be in conversation with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to that last point, um, you know, I, I like theory and I assigned a lot of theory in our, our class, but I do want to be a scholar that produces work that is, um, you know, for everybody to read and work that is, you know, maybe for predominantly an academic audience. Um, but I, I want to definitely have work that is, you know, for, for everybody, not just like siloed in the, in the academy with intense jargon and sort of intentional aloofness, right? So. Mm-hmm. I think that that is an important politics that I hope to maintain, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I'm also curious on your thoughts with, um, with that, like on a medium, have you considered any other mediums in addition to writing that feel like a good way to, to communicate the things that you are studying to, to share it? Does writing feel like the best way for you mm-hmm. to go about that. Um, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts on, on yeah. modes of communicating. Yeah, actually I'm looking for poetry workshops to take this summer. Um, I did some poetry writing and poetry workshops while a graduate student, but um, it was hard for me to create a balance between that creative, well, I think both are creative labors, but sort of poetry writing and also like focusing on the dissertation and the study and the ethnography and being in community. I think some people, and maybe in a different part of my life, I'll be able to balance um, those two passions uh, differently. But um, it was very hard in graduate school um, because I think the academy will certainly take up, you know, a lot of people, a lot of even academics are assuming that that should be the majority of your time, that (laughs) should be your sole focus, Um, you should run yourself into the ground. But yeah, work that's not explicitly, you know, academic journal or book writing um, also feels really important to me. I want to write 
like memoir stuff, um, particularly that feels the way that I will eventually write about my family's sort of um, experience with the prison system, the ways it's impacted my life. It's not something that I study directly, right? One, because it, it is so intense to have it be part of your life and then, you know, sort of engage in study. But um, there are aspects that I'd like to write as just a person like me, solidly. <laughs> and the things I've experienced, the things that my family's experienced and have that feel um, uh, uh, valuable and important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. And that, um, which I know you've talked about potentially wanting to do an MFA, but the poetry, I think I'm thinking about um, the poem that we read in your class by Misha Cardenas, um, yes. the pregnancy poem. And that I think one of the things I, I also like loved about our class was, was different mediums of, of information that it's not just scholarly text, but the, the gender museum Instagram mm-hmm. or the book Sissy, which I've got on my, um, <laughs> on my shelf back there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the, um, and the, and the video, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm spacing on the name right now, but um Wuzang? Yes, the, I think it was the space of love. Or yeah, something. into I think a space of love. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Oh my gosh, incredible. Yeah, and I think that that's it's also one of the few one of the few classes that I think has really it like delved into different mediums and modes and and thinking about how to how to share knowledge in different ways. Yeah. Very so challenging. <laughs> Um, I think that some weeks I accomplished it better than others, but yeah, I think what was great was to have you all encourage, like sort of hearing your feedback. And it's important for me to, you know, even though I'm the one making, you know, making the original syllabus to sort of hear from you all and try to make the process a little bit less vertical in that way. Um, Because students actually said, well, actually saw our prof saw, we love it when there's, um, you know, texts that are like theory driven or like, you know, academic texts, but also like the poetry and the, the, um, the sort of creative films by scholar artists. And, you know, I tried to take that to heart, especially in the second uh, half of the semester. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I, are there pieces or pieces, people, thinkers, music, um, just things that have felt like integral to your own development of like like I don't want to say just into like in intellectual personal emotional like this the the being that you are and like come to be in the university and like this is how you want to navigate being um an academic like yeah are there mm-hmm. pieces that have felt like really formational and and whether or not they're still if, even if they're not if they don't feel relevant anymore they were once really critical and then now you feel like you've grown past. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I definitely am, you know, a huge admirer of Alexis Pauline Gums's work. She is a Black feminist artist, poet, sort of independent scholar, um, educator, um, facilitator, and something that sort of helped me navigate and survive um, graduate school. And I need to return to these, I think, uh, on a regular basis are something called the Black Feminist Breathing Chorus. Um, and she's, she sort of created these, um, um, they're, they're in a sense, they're not podcasts, but they're these recordings where she's bringing folks into um, uh, sort of like introducing these like quotes by um, Black feminist thinkers and artists and turning some of these ideas into daily meditations and sort of forcing us to um, honor our breath and our labor and uh, to maybe slow down um, and value our, um, you know, me speaking as a black woman and black non-binary person, value our our lives in ways that um, institutions will sort of render them disposable. Uh, She also has created something called um, like mobile homecoming um, projects where, um, you know, she's sharing knowledge sort of across, um, uh, you know, across the, the country in a way that um, 
you know, isn't siloed in the academy, right? And puts on different like retreats and workshops um, that are teaching black feminist theory and history. I remember one of them was at uh, Kombahi River, like some kind of retreat space near the river and like really kind of um, sort of immersing people in the land, right? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always admiring um, the balance and the creativity that she brings to knowledge making, including in her books like Spill, um, which are at once poetic and theoretical at the same time, right? Um, so I definitely will mention her. I think, um, I think um, I'll say that, uh, you know, Saidia Hartman's work is, is very um, important to me um, as a Black historian, as a Black historian that is looking for ways to, to write about people, Black, black uh, people, you know, Black female uh, uh, folks and Black women who, um, you know, are often not in uh, formal or official archives. And so like, how do you write the histories of people that are maybe just a footnote or a um, sliver in these official and violent archives, colonial archives, or in her uh, latest book, Wayward Lives, you know, really she writes like a poetic, uh, sort of a poetic meditation, right? Um, and sort of imagining of um, black women's lives in the city who are, you know, again, seen as disposable, seen as not noteworthy, you know, not necessarily like the sort of uh, major activists or organizers, but just um, folks that, yes, yeah, so I think I'm maybe speaking to how much I like the work of Black feminist scholar, artists, thinkers um, that are pushing the bounds of different academic disciplines, right? That are pushing the boundaries of what knowledge making can look like and, you know, be affirmed as and are just setting an example for us to um, disrupt the disciplining of the disciplines um, to sort of make our histories known and I guess maybe intelligible and unintelligible for the, in different times. But yeah, the, those are the works that, that inspire me greatly. And I'm trying to, you know, hopefully one day be in conversation with. Mm, yeah. Alexis Pauline Gums is actually in an episode of How to Survive the End of the World with the Brown oh. Sisters. And she talks about nonlinearity of time with the Black Women's Breathing Course. And I, that's a concept that stuck with me for a while. So definitely someone who I want to read yes. once I finish this. Um, and also more of Sidia Hartman. Yeah, once I graduate and have time to read for myself. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. um, cool. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. That's, yeah. And I think also like um, the way you were ending off with the like refusing the disciplining of disciplines and this like making things intelligible and also yet unintelligible, I think is also brings me back to um, there's a piece I just recently revisited by Frank B. Wilderson mm. called The Prison Slave as Hegemony's Silent Scandal and finishes like ends, ends the piece talking about um, incoherence and like allowing oneself to be elaborated by incoherence mm -hmm. and 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 also the necessity of sitting in the necessity of incoherence because within the piece he's talking about that civil society uh essentially to be invested in civil society is to be inherently anti-black and so what what and he's talking about abolition that like actually to be invested in this abolitionist world making is to to be like, no, we have to get rid of all of this shit. Um, but that that also requires in sitting in this, this incoherence. And I think that that, yeah, I think that feels also kind of at the place that I'm sitting in with this capstone too. Yeah. Of, um, and I think that the different black feminist thinkers that I've read are like bring to the table in different ways. This, that it's not going to just make sense. I think that it doesn't necessarily all cohere and that that is, I mean, I think back to Lord of like the, also the space that like feeling creates for that and thinking about the, like the erotic, which all just all feels so connected. It does. So yeah. yeah, that just, I, and I think, I guess this is just my, I think brain going on a, a tangent, um, but I think continues to go in this direction. Like we were talking about at the beginning of the format of the podcast is, is this messiness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think moving in the direction of 
not necessarily moving in the direction it's that there have been many people who are doing this but I think that that just feels like the place that feels right as opposed to I think what the university pushes for which is not that right absolutely and um, I'm excited to to see how you put the different conversations together which would be really cool yeah thank you so much for talking like I yeah just thank you for talking to me about this and like engaging in dialogue and is like you are someone that it feels exciting to think with and that I really enjoyed having you as a professor but it's also been nice just our conversations post the and not that it necessarily it didn't feel like such a vertical relationship that I think the university often creates but um yeah yeah just thank you I guess (laughs) well thanks for including me because I think um you know like these spaces of reflection on you know what does abolitionist praxis look like for me in the academy I mean I feel like I give a messy answer and I think that my answer might always be messy um one because sort of thinking with even Wilderson like how are we navigating the contradictions that we sort of have to um, to survive, but also try to create ruptures uh, within these like systems of violence, whether civil society or um, the university or housing, right, is, is my research. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think being in conversation, you know, I know it's like for your assignment, but um, just like I was saying about the undercommons, it's like there's always this like mutual like like this is doing something for me and my thinking and my paper that I'm like in the midst of and my like understanding of um you know my identity here so so thanks for this opportunity to think with you yeah and I mean that's also like my hope is not to just be like ah yes I'm going to pull information (laughs) out of you and say goodbye um not at 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 all at all um and I think yeah and I think it's also um just I think like with that um, feels very much so to me important part of like my my own praxis of like thinking with thinking with people learning with people um, but in a way that I guess feels good to both of us um, yeah 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 okay. cool. thank you